there wasn't room for everybody else. Everyone else's arrival was a taking and there was genocide and that's not okay. And that is not at the center of our values. And I love my country and I think there are beautiful things about it. You know, most of our constitution was built around preserving the institution of slavery, but it still had these enduring promises and structures that have the potential to provide for and protect all of us. And that's beautiful in spite of its ugly origins and like seeing and acknowledging all of that, it's just emotional maturity and educational professionalism. And it doesn't diminish our great nation. It makes it greater when we can do that. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, take a moment to subscribe, like, uh, and all do all the things that just kind of help propel this, this, this adventure forward. This interview with Anton Troyer is absolutely amazing. You should absolutely watch it. Take a notebook out, take some notes. It's amazing information. Anton is a great guy. Let's talk about that in a minute. Before we do that, uh, the, uh, the, the Masters of the Museiverse uh, is takes place here in my office at my house. And my office is soon gonna become a bedroom. In the month of November, Minnesota does this day of giving every year. And I'd like to encourage you to consider Masters of the Museiverse in your giving. I've created a page, you can go visit it and see if, if it's something you'd like to do so that I can um, transport this office somewhere else and, um, and, and hopefully be producing a lot more content um, in the process. This interview with Anton Troyer, first of all, could not be possible without um, Kevin Huseth. I met Kevin um, essentially in some social media um, conversations, and I found that he is really on top of this conversation of uh, how do we include Native American music in our classrooms without appropriating it. So I, I teamed up with Kevin on a couple conversations. This, this is the first one. And uh, just so thankful for him. And wow, Anton Troyer, I don't know. So he came to, to my school and spoke and I was just instantly engaged and like my mind was blown about the things I didn't know about. And so I uh, needed to get him on the, you know, on the schedule to, to, to do this. I was not disappointed at all. <laughs> He's super intelligent. I think he might be the smartest person I've ever talked to. And in addition to that, he's kind. Um, he is gracious, uh, insightful. I mean, just so many, so many wonderful, wonderful things. Um, so glad that I could include him in the circle here with Masters in the Museiverse. In, in to thank him, what I would like you to do, uh, especially if after watching this interview, you feel so moved to, to, to want to take up this cause and support it. Um, I would ask you to go in, in the description below. I have three charities that Anton supports, and I want to ask you to support those as well. Give whatever you can to, to, to say that this is an important thing that we need to continue to have a conversation about. Um, I really don't think you'll be, uh, you'll be disappointed with this interview, so enjoy my conversation with Anton Truer and guest co-host, Kevin Huseth. Welcome to Masters of the Museiverse. Today we are speaking with Anton Troyer. Anton is an American academic and author specializing in the Ojibwe language and American Indian studies. He's professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University uh, in Minnesota here, and he's the, a 2008 Guggenheim Fellow. Uh, Anton, I've been practicing my Ojibwe greeting that I learned on your YouTube channel, so you have to know how. let me know how I'm doing. So, Scott Indigenakaz. Hey, hey, that was right on. Great. <laughs> Uh, we're joined by guest co-host, uh, Cloquet High School Band Director, Kevin Huseth. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. As I was mentioning in the pre-interview, Anton, I had the opportunity to hear you speak at my high school um, earlier this year, and I was instantly uh, thankful for you and how you, you can take these difficult topics that are hard for us to talk about because we're afraid of looking dumb we're afraid of being wrong, whatever it might be. Um, and you make these the much more approachable and comfortable to, to, to deal with. Um, and so I, th I thank you for your ability to do that. Thank you. 
Um, so I've, I've learned a lot in the last few months um, because I've been conf confronted with a lot of truths, truths that I've never been confronted with before. Um, and I'm really thankful too for your eye-opening book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask. Um, so once again, thank you for joining us today. Uh, one of the things that, I, I, that comes up in your book, I feel like is a real underlying message, is the idea that there is no one answer for questions about Native Americans and their culture. Um, just as I can't say, hey, all Minnesotans or all Americans agree on this blank thing is true. Um, I think my first question tied to, to that today is, uh, when it comes to referring to Native Americans, how should we say that in, in this conversation today? Yeah, uh, for today's purposes, I think we can use whatever labels we want. But ultimately, this is something not all Native people agree about. You know, I got a house full of natives. I don't even know what they're thinking half the time, much less the rest of the world. And, you know, as you mentioned, Scott, it's, it's, it's important to bear in mind that there's a lot of diversity of perspective and view uh, across the native community. I would love for us to be able to do what they did in Canada, where they had a big national conversation and then agreed upon a simple label with not too many syllables that everybody felt right about. So there they use First Nation and they'll use that to, re re you know, to refer to what used to be called reserves in Canada, they now call First Nations. And people from there, they call First Nations people. A Couple of syllables, speaks to indigeneity, everybody knows who you're talking about. Here in the US, we haven't gotten that far. Um, some groups like the American Indian Movement or the National Congress of American Indians have tried to double down on American Indian, aware of its shortcomings, Christopher Columbus being lost, thought he was in China, no, Japan, no, India, yes, boom, and the label stuck. Um, but at the same time, aware of that, you know, it's been codified in all kinds of US government policy and bureaucracy. Um, it's distinct from its Canadian counterpart, so some people like it. Um, I think it, for the most part, Indigenous, Native and Native American are kind of winning out in terms of social acceptance. Uh, but still, if I say a Minneapolis Native, am I talking about a Native American person from Minneapolis or just someone born and bred? And you still have to establish a context. So. For schools and programs, I usually recommend people talk to their native stakeholders. If they got a native parent committee, for example, with a school and see what they want to use and then employ that term. And if anyone ever gives you grief, you can always say thank you for your feedback. Um, we're, we are following the advice and guidance of our native families and stakeholders here, but we'll be happy to take your comments to them because we revisit this conversation on a regular basis. And it both gets you a uh, getting get out of getting beat up around the ears card and also a way to be connected to and responsive to your native community. I would say that's another underlying thing that I picked up from your book is that, um, yeah, books are great, but you have to, in, to um, you have to invest in relationships and conversations with the, the communities surrounding you. Right. So um, I identify as an American, as a Minnesotan, and a citizen of Fergus Falls. What is the parallel for you as a Native American? You know, I walk in many circles. And, you know, I think for all of us as human beings, we have many layers to our identity, you know, and it, it depends on the context of a conversation, what's showing up more. You know, my father's an Austrian Jewish immigrant and a Holocaust survivor. I feel affinity with that space. My mother's, you know, is native from a little village called Bina in the heart of the Leech Lake Reservation. I feel deep affinity with that space. I show up brown with long hair, usually in braids, or I'm in a man bun today. And there's no way of getting away from how I get othered by others, you know, so I'm seen as a native person. And of course, I'm a, a fluent speaker of Ojibwe and you know, I even officiated a lot of our ceremonies. I teach our language at a university, you know, so those are all things that um, add to how I am seen by others and how I identify myself as a native person. But I'm also a man, you know, I'm also 
you know, 51 years old. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. And all of those things are important parts of my identity. And I might have affinity with someone else who's a father and have a great conversation about that or someone else who just became a grandparent, you know, and it kind of depends on the context of the conversation. All those things, I wouldn't, I don't put them in a hierarchy. They're just all part of my identity. And I'm also an American and, you know, I'm also a Minnesotan and an outdoor enthusiast and all kinds of things. So I guess I'd like to know what are some pressing issues or topics or even just movements that are really exciting that are happening within Native American communities that we as teachers and, and musicians should be aware of? Yeah, so there's a lot of change going on. And I think, first of all, everybody in our world can see some of these changes that are impacting our lives. Climate change, um, it's pretty undeniable now. Uh, we're at an inflection point in America around race and racial relations. Um, our political climate is really testy. Those things are impacting everyone's lives. The health climate, coronavirus are impacting everybody. And specifically within the indigenous community, we, we are deeply affected by all of those things and many others too. Um, and some of the changes are really hopeful and exciting and others are really sobering and stressful. And, and some of them, it kind of depends on what's happening that in any given day. As uncomfortable, for example, as our racial climate is today, I do think we're on the verge of a racial reckoning of sorts. That the fact that we are having these uncomfortable conversations is actually pretty healthy. And um, even though they don't always feel great, wonderful, and you know, happy for all of us, but growth, you know, bringing a baby into the world, raising that baby, it is not a comfortable experience, but it can be beautiful. It can be deeply meaningful. And I think as we try to collectively birth a healthier, happier, more prosperous way for everybody to find access to opportunity, and not just opportunity, economic opportunity, but opportunity at longevity and all kinds of things. I, I think um, I have a lot of hope for that. Uh, we've seen big changes, you know, for example, in my kind of academic work, you know, around indigenous language revitalization, um, around culture revitalization. We've seen native people um, working really hard to rebuild um, business and industry of all different kinds. Um, we've seen progress on the human rights front on environmental issues. And at the same time, we sometimes have seen setbacks. There's people still battling pipelines um, and you know all kinds of things that give pause. There's pushback and resistance to progress on race relations, um, education, and so forth. And so, you know, I, I still think like Martin Luther King Jr. had it right when he was describing, you know, a long view towards the look at history that the view is long, but it, it arcs toward justice. And sometimes the, the pace of change is, you know, tepid and slow, but I think there are a lot of human beings who really care deeply and are trying to affect change in, in good ways. I think fundamentally, most of us are doing the best we can given the information and circumstances around us. Um, and I have faith in my brothers and sisters of all races and creeds that we will be able to affect positive change. Several of my questions are, are more, they, they got brought out from reading your book. And I was like, I, I can't believe I didn't know this. I was never taught this. Um, and so I'd like to ask, can you explain the difference between the terms Ojibwe, Chippewa, and Anishin? I, I'm sorry, I, I, I fumbled. Anishinaabe. I have, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And those are just 
you know, it's very common that indigenous words from indigenous languages morph a little bit when, you know, French, British, or American, you know, cartographers or whatever are making maps or taking notes. So, you know, the word Ojibwe is the Ojibwe language word for this particular tribe or group of people. And French dudes were trying to write that down and they wrote Ojibwe, Jibwe, Chipwe, Chippewa, boom, and it stuck. And then it made its transference in official record keeping. You know, in the American period, most of the treaties were, you know, signed by whatever, the Mississippi Band of Chippewa Indians, and it kind of stuck and is even incorporated into tribal constitutions and things like that. So the word Chippewa is not offensive, it's just mildly erroneous. Uh, and you know, some of the tribes are, are slowly, you know, working on constitutional reform and things like that. It just gets complex to change a constitution, just like ripping up the U.S. Constitution, writing a new one would make people testy. Right. Um, so it just takes a little while to affect those changes. In our language, Anishinaabe is a word that we use to refer to all Indigenous people. And prior to contact with Europeans, it, it simply meant people. Uh, and the usage shifted to mean, you know, native people. So we'll use that in our language to refer to the Dakota, you know, all kinds of different tribes. Um, but it's a little Ojibwe centric to call everybody Anishinaabe, like the Dakota wouldn't use that word in their language. Um, so oftentimes Ojibwe and our very close linguistic cousins, Ottawa and Potawatomi, we all have the same word, Anishinaabe. Um, and some people will think of that grouping of indigenous people, but really it's all, all indigenous people within our language. Okay. Um, so in Minnesota, you alluded to this. In Minnesota, we have Dakota and Ojibwe people, and we yep. have teachers who are teaching both Dakota and Ojibwe people. Are there like considerable differences that teachers should be aware of if they're trying to introduce themselves to an Ojibwe community, would they do something differently as to if they were trying to um, introduce themselves to a Dakota community? There are differences. Um, you know, the Ojibwe and Dakota are the indigenous peoples of Minnesota. Um, the languages are quite different. So, you know, almost as different as Chinese and English, really in terms of structure and, and things like that. But um, there are also some cultural commonalities, um, you know, and so I think it's, it's just good to have a little cultural toolbox 101 for a teacher who's going to be working, um, you know, anywhere in Minnesota. And, you know, if you happen to be in a place, you know, that is surrounded, you know, by Ojibwe territory or Dakota territory to be especially responsive you know, to the cultural practices and tied into the community, you know, for the community that you're going to serve. Uh, that just is kind of common sense. And it does take a little work, you know, none of us had this handed to us on a silver platter. And most of us in America, by the way, most indigenous people in America had the same education as everyone else. Like, I, I, when I went to school K-12, I got the sugar-coated version of Chris Columbus in the first Thanksgiving like everybody else. Um, I had my own lived experience as a Native person. I knew what it was like living in this body with the brown skin and, you know, those kind of things. But my mother um, had become, you know, the first female Native attorney in the state of Minnesota and eventually a judge. And by the time I finished high school, I still would have been hard-pressed to explain to you what is tribal sovereignty and how does that work? You know, because it's not something that happens in school and my parents were busy working professionals and, you know, things like that. So it, it didn't always happen at the dinner table either. Uh, and that's probably common for a lot of, a lot of native people. Uh, at the same time, you know, there are many native people and tribes that have been working very hard to change that. And so there are lots and lots of books and tools and resources um, and ways to access information. So, you know, if you're a teacher in the state of Minnesota, I could point you to a number of different kinds of resources. Um, 
you know, for starters, the Minnesota Humanities Center um, has been working for a long time on the Why Treaties Matter exhibit, website, and lesson plans for teachers that are built by Ojibwe and Dakota educators um, and are free and um, for anybody to use, you know, in their work. There's just on my own website, antontroyer.com, I've got a list of free resources for teachers, lists of books by that are indigenous authored, you know, reliable content. They're easy enough to get a hold of. Um, there are even groups like a lot of Minnesotans are pretty familiar with the Minnesota Conservation Volunteer. Um, but the, a lot of people aren't as aware that they develop curriculum that's kind of tagged at the middle school level. And they have a, you know, some pieces that are focused on indigenous stuff. So I wrote one for them on Ojibwe Lifeways. And again, there's a content section, there's a teacher guide, you know, it's tagged to the standards, it's pretty easy to use um, and, and can be really helpful. Or there was the case of uh, George Bonga, they did a piece on him and he was really interesting. He said, I am the first white man and I am the first black man west of the Mississippi married an Ojibwe woman. Uh, and it was, it was just a really fascinating look at interracial dynamics in the 1800s, um, as well as just kind of a fascinating story. Um, and again, lesson plan, teacher guide, content section, easy to access. So, you know, whether you're working in Ojibwe or Dakota parts of the state, um, it's good to lean in and get the information. Some of the cultural commonalities. Um, both Ojibwe and Dakota people, for example, have tobacco as part of the cultural protocol. So like if we're going to harvest a plant, you know, or an animal or a fish, then a tobacco offering is a way to kind of pay it forward. So we're not just being takers. Same thing if we're asking something of our fellow human in any kind of cultural context, like you want to ask a native person to come in and give a talk in your class, then a little offering of tobacco, like a pipe full of tobacco, you know, put in their hand is a common cultural protocol to open up their cultural knowledge and so forth. And by the way, in terms of navigating your tobacco-free school zone and clean indoor air act, um, we're right on the growing range for Virginia leaf tobacco. So um, for both Ojibwe and Dakota, there's a custom of harvesting red willow or red osher, peeling off the very thin outer bark and then using the inner bark as tobacco. And technically it's not a tobacco plant. There's no tar, no nicotine, no 287 addictive chemical substances. And it lets you honor that cultural practice without violating your Clean Indoor Air Act or your tobacco-free school zone. So, uh, so that's something that's helpful for people to know as you figure out how in mixed company um, to navigate that. And, you know, kind of as a sidebar too, I'd share, it's important to remember that everything we do in a school is a cultural decision. So, you know, honoring Dakota or Ojibwe customs around a tobacco offering, you know, before a cultural event, is not the same as imposing someone's religion on someone else. And even the decision to like make students get up and move to the sound of a bell as a way essentially that was developed to make us all obedient factory workers, even though we're not gonna give any of them factory jobs, that's also a cultural decision. And oftentimes we just keep going with the cultural decisions we were handed and we don't always think about them. And some of them are neutral or like you'd think about bells and you're like mildly annoying and no longer necessary, antiquated, but not necessarily harmful, um, you know? And, but some of them are, you know, like we, you know, we have holidays built around a Christian calendar. That's a cultural decision. And we do not make exceptions, you know, very easily for anyone else's kind of calendar. Um, you know, we're still on an agricultural calendar, even though less than 2% of Minnesotans are farmers, you know, and I'm not complaining. I like my summers off too, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, you know, it, it, these are all cultural decisions. 
So uh, it's, it's important as we think about what cultural decisions we're making, that we make ones that are you know, well-suited to our environment and the diversity of the learners that we have landing in front of us. Are there, what are some of the differences between our seven Ojibwe communities, correct? Mm -hmm. what, is, what are some of the differences between Fond du Lac and Grand Portage or Red Lake and Mille Lacs? Yeah, so, you know, within the state of Minnesota, and by the way, even more broadly, there are Ojibwe communities across Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota. There's a mixed Ojibwe Creek community in Montana, and there are 141 Ojibwe First Nations in Canada. Hmm. That's a huge geographic spread, and there they go from the Quebec border all the way out to Saskatchewan. And it's almost inaccurate to say that there's like an Ojibwe culture. Hmm. Um, it's more like a collection of interrelated cultures, just like you could say there's a collection of interrelated English speaking cultures in New Zealand, Australia, you know, England and America, we do have commonalities, but there's certainly distinct differences too, um, and distinct identity differences. So I would say that's the case when you're looking at, you know, the seven Ojibwe reservations, for example, in northern Minnesota, who do have, you know, shared linguistic and cultural roots and common ancestors. But also there's distinct geography, um, you know, like White Earth, for example, is a big reservation, 40 miles by 40 miles. The western half is open prairie pothole area. The eastern half is woodlands. And it's very different from a place like Mille Lacs, where you're on the big water in the hardwoods, and very different from Grand Portage, where you're up on the Lake Superior shoreline. Um, the, you even have different animals, you know, like in Mille Lacs, there's a, they hunt wild turkeys and stuff like that. And in Grand Portage, you might never see one. Um, although that's probably changing with climate change. You know, you, um, you know, you have different um, politics and different scales of government. You know, White Earth is 40,000 tribal members, Red Lake's around 20,000, you know, Grand Portage is in the hundreds, you know, like it, it's it's different in different places, and that affects politics and and other things too. Um, the in Red Lake and in Mille Lacs, you got a couple communities like Panema, which is in the Red Lake Reservation. No one there's ever been baptized. Hundred percent traditional Ojibwe religious belief and funeral practice. And then on the other side of the lake, in the same reservation, in the community of Red Lake. They're predominantly Catholic, hmm. you know. So even looking on one reservation, you might have very different dynamics in those places. For most of Ojibwe country, I would say, you know, the community of Panema at Red Lake um, and the communities in Mille Lacs tend to be more, um, you know, it's more common that people are following traditional Ojibwe religious beliefs. Um, but across all of those communities, people widely participate in powwow, um, Ojibwe arts and music is very vibrant and actively participated in by everyone. Um, you know, I think you will find great commonalities um, across all of them. Uh, and in most other places, you know, outside of those aforementioned communities, you probably have a diversity of faith traditions. Some people are following traditional Ojibwe ways, some are Catholic, some are Episcopalian, you know, some are agnostic and kind of across the spectrum. Um, a quick question about, you mentioned powwows, and mm -hmm. um, Kevin and I have both talked about trying to attend some powwows. Um, where are they in our area? Oh, yeah. So um, when it comes to, you know, accessing living Ojibwe culture, I would say the powwow is a really easy, um, accessible entry point. Um, so first of all, all of the reservations have at least a powwow and most have many, uh, you know, a place like Leech Lake, you know, there are a dozen different communities and I think all of them have their own powwows and some like in Cass Lake will have three, you know, so they're going often. 
Um, the outdoor powwows are pr probably the most widely attended, um, and there's something happening every weekend. Uh, and usually they go like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sometimes they go a little longer, sometimes a little shorter. And they are usually advertised on the websites and um, on billboards online. So if you went to any of the reservation websites and just looked up powwow in the search bar, you know, you would find out what's what's on the calendar. Um, you could also go to powwows.com or any number of, you know, websites or look for some of the Facebook groups and you'll start finding dates for powwows pretty easily. And if you, if you haven't been to powwows and you're kind of wondering, what do I do and what am I going to see? It's really not too threatening. You, um, all you need to do is show up. Um, they have bleachers. You can just sit there and be very passive and watch what's going on. There's an MC who will speak in English and say, all right, dancers, line up on the east side of the arena. It's grand entry time in Mille Lacs. You know, and you'll see dancers line up. And as they start dancing in for the grand entry, you know, you'll hear people singing. They've got a PA system. And then they'll come in by category. And so they'll say, oh, these are you know, these are men's traditional dancers. You'll notice the feathers. Um, in former times, each was earned as an act of valor in battle. Um, in our traditional dancers are mimicking the actions of hunters or people on the war path. They are protectors, you know, and then they'll explain about different styles of dance as they come into the arena. So you get a little bit of education. You get some pageantry. Um, if you stay for a while, you'll see the different styles of dance. And you don't really have to do anything. Really, anyone can dance. And they might even say, These are, this is an intertribal song. Everybody come out and dance. You don't even need powwow regalia. And you'll see people in street clothes will even come out and dance in and amongst everyone else. Once in a while, there's a special song, like they might have one honoring veterans. And in some communities, they'll just ask their veterans to dance for that. Um, but that'll be announced ahead of time. Um, sometimes they have songs that are just by categories of dance, like women's jingle dress might they say, okay, this song is just for our women's jingle dress dancers, you know, so they'll showcase various styles of dance. And you can just sit there, you can dance if you want, you don't have to. On the outside of the arena, they got food vendors and people visiting and, you know, laughing and things like that. Um, yeah, and as you go deeper, and if you want to participate more actively, then there's lots going on in terms of the music and, um, you know, the various styles of dance and so forth. There's free information on the website. There's information in my book, everything you wanted to know about Indians, but we're afraid to ask. It shouldn't, shouldn't be too hard if you want to get a little more well-informed. And I think that is probably going to end up being the answer to this next question, but I'll ask it just in case. So my next question was, I, you know, I don't have a relationship with any native groups in my area and I'm not sure where to start. So how can I reach out to them and establish a relationship? Yeah. So there's so many different ways. Um, you know, we did just talk about powwow as a way to go and experience a little bit of culture. Uh, and, you know, I think for all of us, you know, it's good to think about how can we make this world a better place? And to do that, we can't just observe and only reflect. You know, we also have to act. But if we just go off and act, and we're not informed, we can end up doing the wrong things or stepping on people's toes. And so there's this kind of combination, this little praxis of action and reflection, and they go together. And so we need to make safe space where people can act. And if we're all stumbling and bumbling and trying to figure it out, that's part of being human and that's okay. And at the same time, you know, we should challenge ourselves to interrogate our beliefs, to ask what I don't see, to be willing to experience the discomfort of meeting new people or going to a new place or having a new experience. And, you know, it makes us stronger. Uh, and ultimately, you know, powwow is a good place to get started, but there are native people who are everywhere. You know, we, we are so deeply involved in so many different things. And it's, it's unfortunate, but as part of the American experience, believe it or not, with interracial marriage higher than it's ever been, with the majority of the K-12 students in America being students of color, most of us have a racially homogenous favorites list on our cell phone. 
and we are more segregated than we were before desegregation, which is weird. So, you know, some of it just happens in basic everyday social and workplace environments when, you know, there's someone, you know, we don't know to be curious about what's below the surface um, and to ask questions and avail ourselves the same way to put ourselves in environments like, you know, for example, there might be a fundraiser, you know, in a native community around missing and murdered indigenous women, or, you know, there's lots of action on social justice and climate stuff. And it doesn't, it's not all protest oriented either. There are a lot of, you know, ways to where people are trying to share information or, you know, there are usually local groups and school groups that are working on things like, you know, maybe there's a storytelling event or maybe there's, you know, a working group on gathering materials for use in, a, you know, sixth grade literature or whatever. Um, if, if you're in education and you ever sit on a committee, most people in education have never been on a committee where the majority of the people are people of color even if they're serving communities that are primarily people of color. And so, you know, that's an, something that we can change and reaching out to people looking for, you know, who's doing that work. All of the tribes have programs. Um, they include a tribal historic preservation officer who does, you know, community outreach, education, museum type work, re works on repatriations. They're a good connection point um, for educators. And they also have their own law enforcement agencies. And so when it's time to bring in somebody to talk to the kids, why not bring in a native person to talk about what it's like being a law enforcement officer in a native community, you know, or, you know, they have social work programs, they have all kinds of businesses, you know, if you're in the Red Lake area, having somebody come from Red Lake fisheries and say, here's what our business is and what we do. You know, we take the traditional practice of harvesting fish. We're a multi-million dollar business. Um, here's how we do it. And you're welcome to go buy some fish and you don't have to drive to Red Lake to do it. You can go to any number of these places. You know, they're happy to do stuff like that. Um, and it just provides connection points. And then for the students, for like the native students, they're like, oh, now they're seeing themselves in the curriculum or in what's being taught in school. And it feels empowering rather than alienating. And for all of everybody else who's going to be living in a diverse place, you know, it's like, oh, there are other things happening and they're positive. Hey, that's cool, you know, and it, it's a perspective builder. So in addition to having a lot of conversations like this, talking to knowledgeable people, um, I've been doing a lot of reading, but I know there's a, a pretty complex history when it comes to uh, reading sources around Native American communities, especially older sources. Um, do you have anything to say about that? In particular, I've been reading um, a book by Francis Densmore and a book by William Whipple Warren. Um, is there anything that I need to be careful about with those books? Are they still valuable resources? Yeah, good question. So first of all, something that's really awesome that's been happening the past you know, 20 years is that there are lots of indigenous people who are writing books. And so, you know, especially in certain areas, like if you're, if you want to read fiction, there are lots of indigenous authored works of fiction. And at almost every level of reading, you know, across the spectrum. So that's getting a lot more rich and vibrant. So, you know, as much as possible, I encourage people to look for indigenous authored works about indigenous people. Um, and usually you'll find authentic voices, even if they don't agree with one another. Um, that's just a kind of a general rule of thumb. But there's so many other things out there too, like, you know, William Warren, for example, I mean, I love that book, but I wouldn't have that be the only book somebody reads about Ojibwe history. So for those who don't know, you know, William Warren was basically doing oral histories in the 1800s. So he's like the authoritative text about, you know, all kinds of Ojibwe and Dakota battles and things like that. And he has kind of like this rich tapestry of, of historical events. 
but he was writing in the 1800s. He was a native guy writing in the 1800s for a white audience. And so his book starts with, you know, the red man is fast disappearing before the onslaught, blah, 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 blah. And so it's another one of these last of the blank type, you know, ways that it's framed. And of course, you know, we didn't all disappear. I'm here today and I'm feeling pretty good. You know, like um, it's important that we contextualize, you know, what he was doing. So for me, you know, it might not be the first book I'd recommend, but I'd certainly, you know, I would use it maybe in an advanced college class, you know, with my students and, you know, would recommend it. And I think as long as people have a little perspective, then there's plenty to learn from it. Um, but yeah, you do need a little framing, you know, and if someone's just getting started, they're like, whoa, that's weird. Dang, it's a shame they killed all the Indians, you know, and, and it can leave you with that if you don't have the context. So uh, this, this kind of goes along the lines a little bit of that idea uh, that you mentioned of being, you know, people with uh, poorly informed good intentions, I think is, is one of the things I think about. And I don't want to be that person. Right. <laughs> um, so I'd like my students to become more aware of Native American music practices, for example. But one of the things that Kevin and I have both talked a lot about is balancing um, appreciation and, and appropriation, not balancing, making sure we appreciate and not appropriating um, aspects yeah. of Indian culture. Um, so like what, what's, what's one of my secrets here? What, how am I going to avoid appropriating? Yeah, so a couple of rules of thumb. Sometimes it's hard to see where the lines are, you know, like when, when we look at broadly at mainstream art and music, it's always cross-cultural. And you, know, you could take something, you know, like just hip hop music, and you can't say that that's white or black or brown. It's like everyone's contributed to that in so many different ways. There are genres that are more heavily informed by any particular group for sure. But at the same time, nobody owns it or has a copyright on it. Uh, and so it's just part of the human experience. We are all deeply influenced by everyone around us and that doesn't need to be shut down or stopped. At the same time, you know, there is a thread and it's part of like the colonial, you know, pattern of erasure, of taking one language, culture and religion and using it to supplant all others that will then take those who are being supplanted and objectify, own, place in museums, label, study as a curiosity to further objectify, you know, and place in a historical but not a contemporary context. And so that's the stuff that gets more problematic. When it comes to like, how do we navigate indigenous cultures today if an effort is indigenous led rather than native inspired, it's probably all right. Like I won't agree with all indigenous people about everything that they wanna share and how they wanna share it. But if there are indigenous people who are raising their voice to share something, you know, that's kind of their prerogative. You know, I won't agree with all white people with everything they have to say or share and they won't all agree with each other either, but that's someone's social prerogative to share what they want or what they, you know, feel like they want to say, right? Um, but if it's people who are even with the best of intentions, you know, imagining or having native inspired efforts, but they're not directly connected to and informed by native people, um, then it's more likely to go sideways. So, you know, this is why like, you could imagine for a school, what would happen if every single person working there was a man? You know, like, could there be a female student who might have an issue, sexual assault or harassment, who might find more safety and affinity speaking to a female employee? Yup, and it's not rocket scientists to see that. What would happen if you had the all-male gender equity team? No matter how woke those guys are, you know, they're going to be missing a really vital perspective, you know, and the optics aren't good, you know, so this is just, 
an area where a lot of schools and programs have a lot of room to grow is that there usually isn't a lot of native representation in the administration, in the body of teachers, um, in who's authoring the texts that are being used in the school, um, in the curriculum, in so many areas. And so we are often imagined, but infrequently well understood. And as a result, it's important that we, you know, provide space for and empower Indigenous voices, um, and they will usually lead you the best. Um, and I would say the same thing, you know, if it's a gender topic that we empower and center, you know, female voices to lead us in those areas. Um, and the same with any other, you know, intersecting fault line in human identity, um, you know, and, and that's part of being humble and saying, hey, you know, we all got blind spots. There, there are plenty of things we don't see. And at, by acknowledging that and staying humble in the effort, then we create space for others, but we also um, provide an opportunity for us to learn more. And all of us are going to have to teach whoever comes through the door, regardless of their gender or race or whatever. Um, but that's not an excuse to ignore or just continue to enable the systems and structures that have so often marginalized those other voices. So part of our job, you know, in the empowered position that doesn't always feel empowering, but is empowered as being an educator, is to make sure that we responsibly wield our, our power to try to build bridges and pull people in and to call in more than we call out, um, you know, in an effort to build understanding and awareness and sharing and stuff like that. I, I love that idea of creating space for somebody else to contribute. Um, and I think that as a band director, that's something that I've, I've really struggled with because there is like a big fat zero <laughs> in terms of native created curriculum for concert bands. Right. Um, I think I've, I've, feel like I've done a lot of research not in the thousands and thousands of pieces out there that a band director can buy. I've found nine that are written, that are led by a native voice. I, mean, I think you said earlier that you had written curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. Where Have you been involved? Like, what, what did that process look like for you? Were you collaborating with somebody? How did you become kind of that that voice and how, how did you get into that space? Yeah, so those are usually collaborative efforts. Um, you know, like when I did contribute on the Why Treaties Matter work and we had Ojibwe and Dakota educators, um, you know, and all kinds of people. They're probably a team of 50 people that worked on those things. And, uh, you know, the goal was to center Ojibwe and Dakota voices in developing content but we made sure that there were, you know, K-12 educators and people deeply familiar with the standards who were, you know, if not, if they couldn't find indigenous people that they were at least partnered with indigenous people to make sure that we had, you know, things built and formatted and easily used um, in that space. And, you know, I think one of the things to bear in mind, it would be great if we had all of the textbooks and curriculum developed and handed to us on a silver platter, but that's probably not realistic that that's gonna happen in all spaces across all disciplines. Music is like one that is obviously especially challenging. And so, you know, if you imagine like what, what does the school district spend its money and time on? You know, like Kevin, you're working in Cloquet and I imagine that they'll pack up that whole school and go to the, Twin Cities to go on a field trip, you know, and take them to a museum or something like that. And then, you know, all around you in the Cloquet Fond du Lac area, you know, there are people right now who are harvesting wild rice, um, who are having powwows. And how hard would it be, you know, to bring them to the lake and have somebody talk about how they harvest rice, have the kids get in a canoe and try it out, you know, um, maybe 
bring some rice to the school and just have people demonstrate how it's processed or you know explain about different kinds of music like even the jigging music they'll use when they're jigging on rice after it's parched and they're separating the hulls from the um you know from the rice kernels and things like that and then you've got some authentic native voices in a local specific experience that's not even costing you that much money you know a little bit for your native content experts maybe if they're going to spend a day with the kids but um you know those sort of things are, are worth building that I think can help bridge some of those gaps. Um, and a lot of times we don't think of it because we're we're looking for, you know, the white authenticated museums, destination spaces, you know, books and curricular materials. And so sometimes we have to build some of those things, um, either the connections or the people or the resources. Um, and then there is some curriculum, not enough, um, and that's worth pulling in too. Um, but over time, we want to build all of that. There's a uh, friend of mine named John Fila who had a great idea. He said, I'm tired of buying books from Texas and California by people who've never been to Minnesota writing all our curriculum. And so his idea was to develop fresh curriculum all by licensed K-12 Minnesota educators and publish it online with a Creative Commons license so that not only will we not have to buy all our books from Texas and California, but over time, school districts won't have to buy books, saving millions of dollars that then can be used other ways in, in school appropriations and needs. And it's kind of a great idea, um, and it's off to a great start. I think they got maybe 100 school districts in Minnesota that are part of the um, creative collaborative um, here in Minnesota now. And it has great promise to pull in more marginalized voices, indigenous voices, Somali, Hmong, you know, all kinds of different ones that, uh, that are underrepresented um, in our educational efforts and create materials that are authored by them and use, useful for teachers. It's just kind of unfair that all the burden goes on teachers who are doing everything they can to hit the moving target that is the standards and then like expected to come up with curriculum that nobody hands them, you know, to deliver the goods. But the whole world's not fair, you know. So here we are, and we got to do the best we can with where we've landed. And sometimes that means a little extra work. And sometimes you'll luck out and there'll be a bunch of low-hanging fruit like by treaties matter, but they only have 16 lesson plans. I mean, it's just barely a drop in a bucket to everything that you need. Um, but there's a lot. A lot of other stuff coming out of um, the creative collaborative curriculum and other things too that that may be of use and we keep building those things up that have lasting value and then we keep building our relationships and connections so that we can create experiences that will be genuine and relevant and relatable and authentic for our students okay um so this is my last question on our list here um it took me roughly 10 minutes of reading about uh, Native American uh, communities and concert band in particular to stumble across boarding schools. Um, and I'm nervous about that. <laughs> I don't know how to approach it. Where is that conversation among the Native American communities? Where is it among the, the, broader, um, the broader sphere? Is that something I should be extra careful about? Um, well, first of all, for those who are listening but don't know, um, most of the grandparent generation have been through residential boarding schools in both the United States and in Canada. And in the US, the, the policy actually started in the late 1800s. Um, and the idea was, in fact, Captain Richard Henry Pratt, who is the founder of the first uh, boarding school for Native kids and, and a big architect of the policy, said our goal is to kill the Indian in order to save the man. Firmly believing that it was a favor to Native people to eradicate their language and culture and to use schools as places to do that. Now, it it meant taking kids away from their families, sending them to residential boarding schools where they received harsh physical discipline for the use of indigenous languages. They got woolen uniforms, they marched to and from class. 
And the schools evolved over time. So they started with um, a lot of harsh physical discipline and they were industrial schools. The kids worked half the day and went to school half the day. And then by the time you got to maybe World War II, they were a little bit more academic and a little bit less industrial, but they were enrolling 20,000 native kids a year. They couldn't even keep up with the demand. So when the US government couldn't make enough schools, they subcontracted a lot of the schools to churches. And as a result, um, the churches were directly engaged in the administration of education that was mandatory for native students. So that's kind of in spite of our separation of church and state and so forth and creates some other issues. And a lot of people like what you might be seeing in the news now is that in Canada, um, they've uncovered numerous mass graves where students who were brought to the schools um, were buried en masse. Uh, and in the United States, there have been some like even just last week, there was another one discovered in, in Nevada. Um, and there the kids were um, buried in individual unmarked graves. Uh, and so both, you know, a lot of the schools in the US like Carlisle, Haskell, and so forth kept hundreds of um, graves for kids. And if you could imagine sending your kid to school and not getting a body back and not having religious choice over the kind of send off that your child would have, that was the experience for many, many, many native families. A lot of the kids died um, because tuberculosis ran rampant when kids were in very close quarters. Even diseases like trachoma, which is just a, it's an eye disease that happens as a result of poor hygiene. And it's what happens when you have little kids digging ditches half the day. Um, they're very, very common, like a third of the kids had trachoma. Uh, and so a lot of the disease or the deaths were from disease, but there were also widely reported, like in the Merriam report in the 1920s, widely reported um, undernourished and malnourished and things like that. It's just appalling. Uh, and in Canada, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that had formal testimony and a formal finding that the Canadian government engaged in cultural genocide. And as part of the truth and reconciliation effort, they're looking at reparations, language and culture, revitalization, funding, things like that. Here in the United States, though, we, we haven't even gotten to a formal acknowledgement of the ugly chapters in history, much less, you know, some sort of reconciliation effort. So as an educator, I would say the things to know um, this is a painful wound for a lot of Native people, and um, one of the things to know is that as you engage with Native students and families and things like that, sometimes like the emotional trust bank account starts with a negative balance, and you haven't even opened your mouth or done anything wrong. It's that historical experience that's hanging over, like where people, you know, everybody has someone in their family who you know, has been through this experience. So why should they trust the school or why should they trust educators? Or, you know, maybe somebody's not showing up for parent-teacher conferences and it might not just be that they don't care. It might not be simply that, you know, it's a single parent and she's working two jobs or doesn't have a car. It might even be that somebody just doesn't feel comfortable in a school the way that somebody who had an awful experience in a hospital feels uncomfortable in a hospital. So what would it take then you know, to build relationships, you know, so that you can engage people and develop a cooperative approach to helping a particular student. And so those are good things for, you know, just to have situational awareness. And, you know, it doesn't like, I don't know, I have a PhD, I believe in education, I want my kids to kick butt and go all the way with school. And sometimes I still feel distrustful of educators, you know, and and so I show up to parent teacher conferences, you know, and uh, and things like that. Um, and I have an awareness of the blessings of a good education at the same time that I have a historical awareness of that. And other people may see one or the other more or less, or maybe the parents like trying to kick their kids butt and get them to do everything with school and the kid feels resistant, you know, and it could be even something as basic, like I had this experience going to school 13 years in a row to learn what I needed to be successful. And like, none of it had anything to do with me. And from people who cared about me, 
and wanted me to succeed, the message, the unspoken message from the absent narratives was that me and mine weren't important, weren't relevant, didn't matter, you know, and then I reacted to that with resistance, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and the professionals were all running around like, how come we got truancy issues? Flight. How come we got discipline issues? Fight. How come some of these kids are spaced out, zoned out, disengaged, or hanging out at the Indian Ed office? Like, freeze. You know, and of course, it's not quite that simple, but having the historical and contextual awareness is helpful. Um, that doesn't mean that we need to like tippy toe around on eggshells. Like, we didn't make this world the way it is. We inherited this world the way that it is. It's not about beating people up for the sins of their ancestors, but we need to acknowledge what's there, you know? Um, and we have, you know, everybody walking through the door, they could have, you know, a racial trigger, um, a sexual assault trigger, depending on what's happened for them or someone in their family. And so sensitivity and awareness, at the same time, it's good to have high expectations. It's, it's good to do our jobs and, you know, to fearlessly share the information that we need to share and expect it out of the kids and whatever. Um, that's fine. Um, but I, I think that awareness and then, you know, an awareness of the importance of building bridges and relationships and elevating our awareness and understanding, um, getting, you know, training if someone's not had it on trauma-informed educational practices and, you know, um, restorative justice, discipline, you know, practices and things like that, that can be really helpful too. Uh, and so, again, you know, there's just stuff we have to navigate that we shouldn't have to navigate, but here we are. And I think for me as a Native person, like I see that, um, I'm aware of historical trauma, but we're, there's also this historical resilience. I, we're more than the sum of our tragedies. It's important to me as a Native person that we like, make space when people need to share about their pains and traumas, but that we don't focus on that to the exclusion of everything else. Like we're the kick butt people in the history of people who figured out how to get enough food when it's cold out there, how to cooperate, how to build things, you know, how to build, you know, even something as simple as a canoe, the architectural design of which still survives and is widely used in practice today because it made so much sense. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things. Look at the food in your fridge chocolate, vanilla, potatoes, corn, tomatoes, you know, all these things came from indigenous people and changed the whole rest of the world. There's lots of empowerment there. And I think that's important to share with students too. So um, not a simple answer, you know, to a complex set of historical circumstances, but um, I think there is, you know, opportunity for us to empower all of our students um, and to acknowledge, you know, um, historical injustices. And to me, I think, you know, looking at an ugly chapter in history can be very healing, you know, and I think it's just something that America hasn't done a very good job of. Like, for the most part, we've tried to ignore historical injustices because it somehow impugns the honor of our American exceptionalism or something, you know, and rather than sticking our heads in the sand, I think, you know, like if a person injures another person and that person says, oh my word, I am so sorry, I messed up. That doesn't reflect the values that I wanna hold and I'm so sorry, what can I do to make it right? Like you're much more likely to trust and respect that person than if they're like, forget about it, all happened in the past, don't talk about that, you know? It's just like the Daily Show, you know, today was was just talking about, well, America looks so bad in Afghanistan that Texas is already banned teaching about it. You know, it's like painfully, sadly, kind of the direction that some people want to take us in, you know? So I think acknowledging, you know, yeah, this is America, you know, we embraced and built a nation on the idea of enslaving a whole race of people. There wasn't room for everybody else. At the time of contact, there were 100 million people in the Americas. There were 88 million in Europe. This country was already more densely populated than Europe. There wasn't room for everybody else. Everyone else's arrival was a taking. 
and there was genocide and that's not okay and that is not at the center of our values and i love my country and i think there are beautiful things about it you know most of our constitution was built around preserving the institution of slavery but it still had these enduring promises and structures that have the potential to provide for and protect all of us and that's beautiful in spite of its ugly origins and like seeing and acknowledging all of that it's just emotional maturity and educational professionalism and it doesn't diminish our great nation it makes it greater when we can do that well i'll say it again everything you want to know about indians but we're afraid to ask is a whoop, getting camera um is a great i think a great starting point at least it was for me because it it um it helps me how to help me confront things that i guess i didn't even know were there in, in some cases um we talked about a lot of books today too and a lot of different things i'll try to link everything in the description below is there anything that you'd like to plug um any resources um podcasts anything that that would benefit us you know, there's no way to exhaust a conversation like this in one podcast, but, you know, I'll say this, I'm just happy to stay in conversation with both of you and anyone else who's listening in. I have a website, I've got free resources on there, there's information on my books there, you know, happy to share that. Um, everything you wanted to know about Indians, but we're afraid to ask, we have a young reader edition out now. So it's kind of made for, you know, middle and high school students, um, as well as the adult version. And, uh, just just happy to see all the good people leaning into some of the most important work of our time. All right. Well, thank you, Anton. Thank you.